0: We will read verses 13 through 21 this morning. The sermon will specifically be from verses 18 to 21 as we looked at verses 13 to 17 last week. This scripture was inspired by God. It is useful for teaching, for rebuking for correcting and training in righteousness. Let us give our hearts and our minds to it that we may be conformed to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says to the elect exiles, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So when Jamie and I lived out in Los Angeles, about once or twice a year we would travel five hours north up to Yosemite National Park. If you've never been there, I would encourage you to go sometime. It's one of the prettiest places I've ever seen. And uh, really, you can behold the glory of God there in ways maybe that you can't see the glory of God here. But I remember one uh, Sunday night, we were traveling back from Yosemite, and instead of going out of the southwest entrance, we actually exited the the east entrance and was was heading down on a highway, I think it's 375, that runs north to south, and so uh, we're driving, and it's late because we spent all weekend there, and we're uh, heading on our way back. And I looked down at the uh, gas gauge, and we were getting close to empty. you remember this, Jamie? Yeah. Yeah, she remembers it, too. Um, and so I said, we're going to need to get some gas. And and so we began to go through small town after small town. And uh, believe it or not, even in California, there are uh, entire towns that close down on uh on Sunday nights. And so we would pass gas station after gas station that was closed. And so uh, we started to get a little bit nervous as the, the needle hit the E. You know, but you know, when it hits the, knee, the E, it doesn't mean that you're completely out of gas, at least not in most cars. But something happened to us that really made us nervous. We entered into the Mojave Desert. And so, um, believe it or not, there are no gas stations in the desert. Um, and so we enter into the desert and, and we're traveling along and the needle starts getting a little bit lower and a little bit lower and it's getting later and, and uh, we've seen a sign and it, you know, it'd been like 40 more miles to the next town or whatever the case may be. And all of a sudden we see these big lights and hundreds of cars, um, backed up. They're doing road work on the single road that runs north to south through the desert. And here we are with no gas, you know, almost no gas. And Jamie and I go back and forth. What are we going to do? I mean, what, well, at least there will be people around, but they're not going to have gas, and so who are going to lean on? And, and then we come to a dead still stop, and we're there for like five minutes, and we're, we're debating on whether or not to turn the car off or to leave it running because we don't know how, it's go, how long it's going to last. If we turn it off, we feel like we might save gas, but if we turn it off, we also think maybe it won't crank up again. We decided to leave it on, and uh, finally the traffic started moving, and we're, we're, we're going through the desert, and um, we're coming out on the other side, and we go down this big hill, and it's like we feel the car coasting, you know. And we literally go down this hill and are able to turn left and find a gas station. And uh, Jamie and I experienced some significant anxiety. Jamie, was there conflict on that trip? Yeah, there was conflict too. There was conflict. <laughs> all right, there was a, a conflict too, and, and so um, it was a very, very uh, rough evening on our way home. And then, but we made it to the gas station and we got gas, and we made it home. All right, this is the deal. All right, I think that as Christians, we can live our lives in such a way that is nerve wracking, that is anxious, anxiety filled that is conflict-filled because we we don't have the fuel that we need to make it to heaven, to make it before the presence of God with confidence. All right, the passage before us today, verses 18 to 21, is the primary fuel, the primary fuel to live out the Christian life with confidence, to live it with a sense of peace, a great sense of hope, A great sense that, hey, I know that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. I know that I am more than a victor. I'm more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And, And I don't have to be biting my fingernails. And I don't have to be worrying. And I don't have to be arguing. And I don't have to be filled with all kinds of anxiety if I know what I need to know. All right? And so we're going to talk about the practice of knowing what you need to know to live a faith fueled Christian life at the very end of this message, but to start off the message, I want us to look at the truths that we see in verses eighteen to twenty one. Okay, so if uh, if we can get the outline up there, at least the first proposition uh, up on the screen, can we do that? Maybe, maybe not. Well, let me let me give it to you, let me give you the kind of the first proposition here. It's uh it's it's four words about yeah four words about the gospel. I kind of made it a little bit longer in my notes. Four words about Jesus Christ that you need to know to fuel a life of personal holiness, to fuel a life of Christian victory. Four words. You just kind of hang, hang the message on these four words, and then we will apply it at the very end. And so, if you want to be fueled for a life of personal holiness, I mean, and that's really what this text is about. I mean, if, if, uh, if you were here last week, we saw that the command is to be holy as God is holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, then you need to conduct yourself here in a manner of fear. Just as your Father is holy, you want to be holy. Just as your God is a judge, you want to be able to stand before Him in judgment with confidence, knowing that you lived a life that was fueled by the Holy Spirit. And so here we go. Four words that will help you live a life of personal holiness. The first one is preciousness. Preciousness. We see it in verses 18 and 19. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious, the precious blood of Christ. I want you to see that word redeemed. I suspect that every version that's represented here this morning is has the word redeemed uh, in it. Because this is really the main verb. This is the key verb in the section, this word redeemed. And I think we need to establish this fact to write right up the start. Every one of us needs redemption. Mark, you need redemption. I need redemption. Mike, Leah, y'all need redemption. Apart from redemption, we, we, have, no, we have no hope. Uh, apart from the sovereign work of God, you and I live in spiritual bondage. We live in spiritual bondage. All right. And what he's essentially saying when he says, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, he's saying, look, this is the deal. You have empty desires, you have empty, empty ambitions that produce empty lives. That's what you have, apart from Christ and apart from tradition. He's saying, apart from redemption, you live in bondage. Now. when we think about this as far as 21st century America you look around you don't really see a lot of people who actually appear like they're in bondage you don't see a lot of people in chains you don't see a lot of people uh, slavery has been outlawed so no, it, you know, people don't live in bondage today we're, we're free today well, not so fast alright I, um, I frequent a few places here in the community one is the gym and I enjoy going to the gym, meet friends at the gym, hoping that I'll get some of the folks who I uh, work out around me to come to church here. That's really what I'm praying. But you know, there is a group of, of uh, folks who go uh, to any gym who are um, utterly consumed with how they look. Utterly consumed with what their bodies are shaped like. Utterly consumed with uh, the, the muscular features of of their bodies. such Such that you can look at them and you can see to a degree that they are in bondage to themselves and to their appearance. And the thing is this, is if you were to take away their physical health and their physical appearance, you know what they would have? Nothing. They'd have nothing. They're in bondage to that. You go to the mall. Mike Diggs and I went to the mall. I had, had lunch. We were looking at doing some evangelism on, on Friday. And you see people who are carrying bags, you know, right hand and left hand. And, and if it's a woman, you know, she's dressed just, you know, just, all, just from head to toe. She's got makeup on and she's got her hair completely done and likely the nails and everything else. And, and, you, and you look and look, there's nothing wrong necessarily with any of that. But there's a pattern sometimes that you can see in both men and women where, they, where you realize that what they are in bondage to is things and stuff to enhance the quality of their life rather than God himself being sufficient for that life. And so they're in bondage to appearance because if you took their appearance away and if you took their stuff away, they wouldn't have anything. And I uh, can't help but mention this too, yesterday being a huge football Saturday. You guys ever been to a college football game? Ever been to an Alabama or an Auburn game? You ever listened to sports talk radio? Ever ever just you know listen to it and listen to the fans that call in the show, and sometimes I'll listen to the radio and I'll hear this fan call in for for whatever team, and after they get through going through their spill and their problem and their axe to grind, sometimes I think if this person didn't have Alabama football or if this person didn't have Auburn football, you know what they would have in this world? Nothing. They have nothing. You see, these are. These are 21st century America problems, but you know what it is, it's bondage. We're in bondage to ourselves, we're in bondage to worldly things, we're in bondage to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And what Peter is saying to us is that you need redemption, and we have redemption in a singular person, all right? And that redemption comes through Jesus Christ. So if you look back down at the text, all right, he says you weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold you know when i think of corruption i I think uh, of corruptible things like bananas we've got a banana at the house right now that's been sitting there for a week we're about to go away for three or four days if we don't get rid of that banana all right when we come back it's gonna it's not gonna be good all right all right i think of milk you guys ever left the milk out overnight yeah you want to drink that milk no it's corruptible i don't think of silver and gold silver and gold are what I consider to be one of the most inc- you know some of the most incorruptible items precious metals i mean look you, you you see it all the time you hear it on the radio you look on television people are looking to sell you silver and gold or to buy it because it's really precious what peter is saying is the most precious thing that you can find on the planet is corruptible in comparison to the redemption of which you were purchased by through the blood of Jesus Christ, it's a it's a an argument from the lesser to the greater. So let's just let's talk about redemption for a moment. All right, uh, redemption always involves three things. All right, it involves a redeemer, a ransom, and a substitute. A redeemer, a ransom, and a substitute. If I was a slave in first century Roman Empire, and I'm am standing up on the block where I was gonna be I was gonna be uh, purchased then what would happen? A redeemer would come uh, and he would say, I'm going to give a price. I will pay for that slave. I want to buy him. And so uh, you'd have the outside party, who is the redeemer himself. He would say, okay, I will buy him. I want to make that purchase. And then he would offer whatever the purchase price was, whether it be money or whether it be some other thing to barter with, whether it be an object, all right? So you have a redeemer, a ransom, and you have a, a payment. And the thing about Jesus is, is that he serves as the Redeemer, the ransom, and the payment all in one, and and the substitute, okay? He is our Redeemer. Now, don't turn to these passages. You can write them down. But I just want to emphasize how the New Testament focuses on Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, as our ransom, as our substitute. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a what a ransom a ransom is a payment all right it's a payment for something or for somebody to give his life as a ransom for many mark 10:45 galatians 3:13 says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it's written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree Listen, the thing is this, y'all. The law of God sat over us. And it said, you shall worship the Lord your God. You shall not take his name in vain. You shall have no idols before me. You should not steal. You should not kill. You should not lie. You should not covet. And you know what? Every one of us before that law... We're coveting, we were lying, we were stealing, we were idolizing and all of that, and we sat cursed underneath the law. And Galatians 3 says Christ came to redeem you from that, to buy you out of that state um, of cursed underneath His law. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of as sons you realize that because we needed redemption if something wouldn't have happened that jesus wouldn't have come as a redeemer we'd have sat in condemnation we'd have had condemnation sitting over us and governing us and ultimately we would experience condemnation forever apart from the redemption that's in jesus if you guys get the thursday roundup you know that at the very top of the email that i send is ephesians 1 7 says in him we have what Redemption, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, part of redemption is us getting forgiveness. Our greatest need in the whole world is forgiveness of sins. And because we have a Redeemer who paid the price, who was our substitute, He redeems us. He forgives us. Last week we read in Revelation chapter 5, the the, the scene was the throne room of, of, of heaven, and Jesus was there, And listen, it says they sang a new song saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. One of the greatest things about redemption is that we're no longer separated from God, but we're joined to him. We're no longer in isolation from God. We're in fellowship with him. We're no longer in rebellion against Him. We are in obedience to Him. And all of that happens because we have a Redeemer who brings us to God, ushers us into His presence. And then therefore we read verses 18 and 19 of our our, um, text today. It says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It was uh, Thomas Watson For those of you who are familiar with the Puritan Thomas Watson, he was writing about redemption as God's greatest work. And listen to what he said. He's drawing a comparison between creation and redemption. And he says, great was the work of creation. Think about it, y'all. We look around and we see the trees. We see the stars. We see the clouds, we see the sun, we see the moon, we feel the breeze against us on, a, on an autumn afternoon. It is an awesome thing to behold and to experience. And Thomas Watson says, Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost God more to redeem us than to make us. In creation there was but the speaking of a word. In redemption there was the shedding of blood. You ever thought about that? How great the work of redemption is? And I just want to ask you the question this morning before we go any further. Is the blood of Christ special to you? Is the blood of Christ special to you? Is it precious to you? When you think about the work of redemption that He accomplished for us on the cross, is it something that brings a significant amount of pleasure and satisfaction and thankfulness and humility. I know it did to Robert Lowry. Robert Lowry in 1876 wrote the the hymn Nothing But the Blood. Nothing But the Blood. Listen to a few lines. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know to Robert Lowry, he's thinking to himself, you know what I'm dirty. Not only am I dirty, but I'm broken. And so, what can wash away my dirtiness? What can make me whole and and put back my brokenness? He says, nothing but the blood of Jesus. He says, nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's saying, I'm separated from God. I'm bad, I'm not good. But the blood of Jesus makes me whole the blood of Jesus makes me right and so the refrain in that hymn is oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fount I know nothing but the blood of Jesus I want to ask this question why is the blood of Jesus precious why is it precious well that leads us to the second word you can write it down it's purity Write down the word purity if you're taking notes. Because this is why his blood is so precious. The purity of the person of Christ. He says, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, Peter's imagery here is actually going all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is what uh, we we understand to be the Passover passage where Israel is in bondage. They are in slavery to Pharaoh and Egypt. And God is bringing judgment upon the Egyptians. God is bringing judgment on sinners. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to strike down the firstborn of every household. And so this is what you can do, Israel. You can take a lamb that is a year old, and it is, has to be unblemished, and it has to be a male. And if you take that lamb, and you, and you strike it, and you kill it, and you take its blood, and you put it over the doorpost, and the lintel of your house, the angel of death that flies over every house on that night will see the blood that is shed, and it will pass over your house, and it will not, it will not strike down the firstborn. Is why it's called the Passover because the angel of death passes over wherever there is blood where there is there's is blood a sacrifice that has been made alright and I don't think that it is I don't think that it's coincidental that the lamb that has to be slain in the Passover is unblemished that it is uh, a year old or younger uh, and that it's a male because it prefigures the ultimate Passover lamb right who was unblemished Peter says who was obviously a man in the man Jesus Christ and who died at a very young age, likely at the age of 33, right? Because the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12 prefigures the purity of the ultimate Passover lamb in the man Jesus Christ. Now, this is the deal. You fast forward about 1,500 years from the first Passover to the ultimate Passover in Jesus, and Jesus is walking. And John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, Behold the what? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right? And so, he's beholding the purity of Jesus. And y'all, as I considered this uh, and how to present it, this aspect of Jesus' purity, I thought, you know what, I think we may... um, we may take for granted um, the wonder of Jesus' purity. So I want to reiterate to you from the Scriptures the, the nature of the unblemished character of our Savior. So if you're writing notes, you might could just write down the testimony of Christ's purity. The testimony of Christ's purity. Because as I read through the Scriptures, I realized that That there are witnesses all over the place to the purity and sinlessness of the ultimate Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. This is the testimony, first of all, from God the Father. It's uh, Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 17. Jesus at his baptism and Jesus at the great transfiguration. Some of you don't know what the transfiguration was. It was when Jesus went up to this mountain and he was transfigured. He was changed. His, his uh, face and his body shone, shone and uh, it was a beautiful, glorious thing that some of the disciples were able to see. But at both, at both occasions, God the Father looked on God the Son and said, um, this is my beloved Son in whom I am what? Well pleased. I am well pleased. God the Father is making testimony that Jesus Christ is pure. He is spotless. He is blameless. You also get the witness of Jesus' temptation. In uh, Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, we actually read about uh, Jesus being tempted by Satan. He comes out of the wilderness, and he was undergoing temptation there. He's been fasting. He's been praying. And all of a sudden, Satan shows up, and he says, I'll give you the world. I'll make you the uh, the king. I'll, I'll get you whatever you want, Jesus. And Jesus, in his purity rebukes satan constantly by saying for it is written in the word of god and then he corrected satan at every turn but what we see at the greatest onslaught of temptation that any person has ever experienced he did not give in to sin because he was pure he was blameless he was spotless jesus himself gives witness to his purity you could just listen to to a few of these observations here when you read about jesus going to the temple Mike, do you ever read about Jesus making a sacrifice offering for his sin? No, not once do you read about that, because he never did. Why? Because he never sinned, all right? Another observation, we never read of Jesus confessing his own sins or asking for forgiveness. You don't You don't read about it. He gives us the Lord's Prayer in the book of Luke, all right? But he doesn't pray it for himself. Why? Because he didn't need to ask for the forgiveness of trespasses. In John 8, verse 29, listen to what Jesus says. He says, I always do those things that please the Father. I always do those things that please the Father. John 8, 46, He says, Which of you convicts me of sin? None of them convict, could convict Him of sin because He had none. And in John 14, 30, Jesus said, The ruler of this world has nothing in me. He has nothing on me, He has nothing in me. He has no control over me. Because he was blameless. He was spotless. He was a lamb without blemish. You also get the witness of ungodly men. The Father gives witness. Jesus himself gives witness. All right? Even the temptations he went through give witness. But listen to what ungodly people do. In Luke chapter 4, the demon-possessed man cried. He says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Matthew chapter 27, Judas, who has betrayed Jesus, he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate's wife called Jesus that righteous man. Pilate Pilate himself says, I find no guilt in this man. The dying thief said, this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion who saw Jesus up on the cross called him innocent of all things. Ungodly people, unbelievers beheld the unblemished, holy nature of Jesus. Guys, we could go on and on. You read the book of Acts. Oh, you got the witness of the early church. Peter calls him the Holy One. Paul, uh, Ananias, John, they all declare the sinlessness and the unblemished nature of Jesus. But I want to draw your attention to the book of Hebrews. You don't have to turn there. In chapter 4, verse 15 the writer says that Jesus was tempted in all points just as what? We are. Yet without sin. In Hebrews 7, verses 26 to 28, the writer says He's holy, He's innocent, He's undefiled, He's perfect forever. And in chapter 9, verse 14, it says that He offered up Himself without blemish to God. Guys, I know that that might seem a little bit like a classroom lecture right there. But I think it's important for us to understand. Because if you meditate on your sinfulness, if you meditate on your guiltiness, if you meditate on your separateness from a holy God, you need an unblemished, holy Lamb of God to take away your sin. Do you realize that every time that you are angry without cause, Jesus is patient? You realize every time that you lust after a, a man or a woman who is not your spouse, that Jesus was chaste? You realize every time that you are tempted to, to be angry and to experience conflict over some selfish desire, Jesus was unselfish? Do you realize that every time that you hoard your resources and are unwilling to help other people, that Jesus Christ gave everything that he had? Do you realize every time that you give in to your sinful flesh and say, I want that, I've got to have it, now I'm going to get it, that Jesus said no so that he could live a pure life that you're supposed to live and can't and won't, so that he would die a death that you deserve, so that you can have his righteousness and he would take on your guiltiness? This is the pure Lamb of God. This is the spotless, blameless Lamb of God. Write down 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is really one of the key verses in in the Bible. It says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is what we call the doctrine of imputation. Some of you may have never heard of the word imputation. The word impute means to assign. To assign. So, what happened as the ultimate Lamb of God who came to the cross and was dying on the cross, Jesus, uh, God the Father, I'm sorry, assigns, He imputes your guiltiness and my guiltiness onto Jesus Christ. And then, he imputes, he assigns Jesus' righteousness onto you. He declares, Mike, that you're not guilty. And why does he declare that? Based upon the merited righteousness of Jesus. And he looks upon Jesus, who knew no sin in his life, who was a pure and spotless lamb, and he says, Jesus, you are guilty, not because inherently you sinned, not because inwardly you have defilement, because I am assigning to you, Mike Diggs, defilement, and that's what we call the great transaction. It is the imputation, God the Father's assignment of guilt onto Jesus and righteousness onto you. Yeah, that's a glorious truth that we've got to live on and believe if we're going to be fueled by the truth of the gospel. All right, so the third, four, the third word and the fourth word uh, are really go fast here. The third word is plan. Plan. Look at the text again, verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God and who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This word foreordained, it means that God the Father planned to send God the Son to come to the world and to do exactly what I just talked about before the foundation of the war before the world was ever even created this this should give us great confidence in the plan of God and I think I just want to say one thing here God is not like an EMT an emergency medical technician or an ambulance driver He doesn't sit around and see what's going to happen and hope that nothing does. Oh, something happened? Okay, I'll be right there and we'll see if we can create a plan in order to help you with your problem. That's not the way that God is. God knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning and everything in the middle. And He knew that Adam and Eve were going to fall in the garden. He knew that man would be plunged into the depths of depravity and into sin and rebellion and hatred of himself. He knew that they would not worship him, but they would worship themselves and and raise up idols all over the place. He knew that from the beginning, and he set up a plan before the very foundation of the world that he would send his son, his beloved and only son, into the world in order to redeem us from our sins. Guys, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I mean guys if if we were god i don't know that we would make the same decision you know to, to to be glorious in beauty and in excellence and in power and in knowledge and to know that little squirts like us are going to spit in our face constantly and yet to create a plan to redeem this these people to bring them to yourself to bring them into a worshipful experience. It is a glorious thing. Um, If you want to cross-reference Romans 8, 29 and 30, and Ephesians 1, 5 to 11, we won't turn there, but you see the foreordained, predetermined plan of God before the foundation of the world played out for my and your salvation. That's the plan. All right, then finally, let's look at the fourth word, purpose. Purpose. What I mean by this is the loving purpose of God to redeem you and give you faith and hope. And, uh, I, I, really, I really get uh, this word purpose from the two words right there at the end of verse 20 where he says, For you. Why did God create this plan? Why did He foreordain before the foundation of the world the ultimate Lamb of God, the spotless one, the unblemished one, to shed His blood? It was for you. It was for your sake. It was for your benefit. It was for your pleasure. It's ultimately even for a glory that you can share with this Lamb of God who has been raised up into heaven. It is God's love for you. It is His mercy towards you. It is His desire to bring you out of a miserable condition It is his passion to bring you out of a guilty position and it is him saying, I love you this much. I am going to do this for you. This is the purpose of God in salvation and in redemption. And so guys, when we think about being fueled for a life of holiness, remember verses 13 through 17 talk about being holy as God is holy. It is living a life of of personal holiness. Living a life That conforms to the very character of God who is unblemished and undefiled. All right. How can we have fuel to do that? Well, we need to think about the four words for sure. We need to think about the preciousness of Jesus. We need to think about the purity of Jesus. We need to think about the predetermined plan of Jesus. And we need to think about the purpose that God did this for us. That's going to help us. And I think a way to do that is for us to rehearse the glorious gospel that we're seeing in this passage. Now, uh, this week, Phil and I actually went to a counseling conference. And at that conference, I, uh, I found the book that I had referred you guys to. It's called The Gospel Primer. And uh, I put about four or five in the pocket of the inside chair, every inside chair. And I tried to get one for every family. Not everybody's going to have a copy, but I think I got like 30 or 35 copies. Could we make sure that every family gets a copy right now? Every family unit at least, because what I think what Peter is doing in this passage is actually priming the gospel pump he 's actually fueling us with the gospel, and uh, the the guy who wrote the a gospel primer actually went to the same seminary that uh, I did, and I just want to read to you some comments that he makes in his bigger version of the book before we actually look at it. He says, This book is offered as a handy guide to help Christians experience the gospel more fully by preaching it to themselves each day. It's offered as a correction to a costly mistake made by Christians who view the gospel as something that has fully served out its purpose the moment they believed in Jesus for salvation. You know, Candace, you actually talked about that last week in your testimony. Um, Not knowing what to do with the gospel once they are saved, they lay it aside soon after conversion so they can move on to bigger and better things. Of course, they don't think this is what they're doing at the time. Yet after many years of floundering and defeat, they can look back and see that this is exactly what they've done. Actually, God offers the gospel to us every day as a gift that keeps on giving to us everything we need for life and godliness. The Bible tells Christians to be continuously established and steadfast in the gospel and to refuse to be moved from there. As for myself, see if you resonate with this at all, y'all. After years of frustration, fits and starts, and exhausted collapses in my Christian walk, I have come back to a focus on the gospel and have found its sufficiency for daily living to be truly overwhelming. After years of church attendance, university and seminary training, and countless hours of Bible study in preparation for preaching many hundreds of sermons, I have found nothing more powerful, nothing more life-transforming than the gospel truths affirmed on the following pages. And then finally, at the end of his introduction, he says, this book is based on the premise that all Christians should become expert in their knowledge and use of the gospel, not simply so they can share it faithfully with non-Christians, but also so they can speak it to themselves every day and experience its benefits. So I opened the sermon with that illustration about running out of gas and uh the anxiety and the conflict and the questions that resulted from running out of gas. And I did that because what I don't want is for us to live Christians' lives that we feel like we're always running out of gas. We're running on fumes. And we don't know how we're going to make it to the next Sunday. And we don't know how we're going to make it to heaven. And we don't know how we're ever going to glorify God and enjoy Him forever because life doesn't seem all enjoyable. It seems awfully guilt-ridden. It seems like I feel bad all the time. It seems like I'm never doing enough. It seems like I'm always falling short. It seems like I'm always doing this. I'm always doing that. You guys ever felt that way? Or is it just me? All right, so open your your gospel primer. And I just want us to read some of the points in the gospel primer. I want you to to put this in your Bible. I want you to rehearse it. And some of you who have your own copy, rehearse it every day. Say, you know what? For one month, I'm going to rehearse this, and I'm going to revel in the fuel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way it's laid out is it has a number, and it gives the truth, and then the footnote then refers you to, to the exact passage that he's referring to in order to make that true statement, that principle. And so when I read this, I actually read the, the number, I read the statement, and then I read the footnote so that I can attach it to Scripture because everything that he says is attached to scripture. So let's read uh, some of these. First of all, he puts it under the head of the glory of God. My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all his perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from Him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from His loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to Him and His goodness. My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent upon Him in whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all the universe. And He has created me with the intention that I might glorify Him by finding my soul's delight in Him and by living in joyful obedience to Him in all my ways. Yet, I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. Instead of giving thanks to Him and humbly submitting to His rule over my life, I have rebelled against Him and have actually sought to exalt myself above Him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I've broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I've shown myself to be a fool. And because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to the everlasting experience of His terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for myself, apart from Christ, I'm bound by the guilt of my sins and also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Apart from Christ, I'm also utterly deserving of and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Completely unable to save myself or even to make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. You guys realize that the gospel is bad news before it's good news, don't you? However, what I could not do, God did. And in doing it, He did it all. Sending His own Son into the world to die on the cross for my sins thereby showing me unfathomable love. God loved me so much that he was willing to suffer the loss of his son. And even more amazingly, he was willing to allow his son to suffer the loss of him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to lay down his life for me. No one could ever love me more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead thereby announcing that His death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit throughout my lifetime. God then exalted Christ to His own right hand, where Christ now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on Him by faith. Now, when my time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, God instantly granted me a great salvation let me just say this salvation is a process from god's point of view he brings the holy spirit he convicts you of sin he tells you about uh, your need for a savior and all of that but salvation is an instantaneous process whereby you put your faith in jesus and let me tell you if you are not saved if you have not experienced salvation you can experience it today you can cross over from death to life this is how he this is how it happens look at number 22 He forgave me of all my sins, past, present, and future. He made me His child, adopted me into His family. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives me God's power, who pours out God's love within my heart, and who tenderly communicates to my spirit that I am a child of God and an heir of eternal glory in heaven. In saving me, God also freed me from slavery to any and all sins. I no longer have to sin again for sin's mastery over me has been broken. In saving me, God also justified me. And being justified through Christ, I have a peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed His future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated. That is, Satisfied by Jesus, who bore it upon myself, I'm sorry, himself on the cross. Consequently, God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me even through trials. Because I am a justified one, He subjugates every trial and forces it to do good unto me. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as He graciously maintains my justified status as described above. When I sin, God feels no wrath in His heart against me. His heart is filled, listen to this, y'all, with nothing but love for me. He longs for me to repent and to confess my sins to Him so that He might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in His heart all along. God does not require my confession, but He desires to forgive me. In His heart, He already has forgiven me. And when I come to Him to confess my sins He runs to me as it were as is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words of my confession out of my mouth. God does see my sins and He is grieved by my sins. His grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin I am not receiving the fullness of His love for me. He even sends chastisement in my life but He does so because He is for me, and He loves me, and He disciplines me for my ultimate good. I don't deserve any of this, even on my best day, but this is my salvation, and herein I stand. Thank you, Jesus. This is the gospel that we need to rehearse to ourselves every day so that we own it, we believe it, we love it, and we live in it. Guys, we've been in a series called uh, Salvation. Under, under our big series, First Peter, we've looked at the hope of salvation, the joy of salvation. We've looked at the grace of salvation. we looked at the response to salvation. And today we look at the God of salvation. The God of salvation is the one who has brought us the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in whom we have forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Let's now stand in response and worship this God.